don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello and welcome to the show. Owen McDevitt here with Kieran Murphy. Hey Murph. Hey Owen, how's it going? Last week on Second Captains, we welcomed a worldwide star in Conan O'Brien who jumped straight to the top of this season's greatest non-sports person, sports person table, impressing our judge here by being tall and strategically laughing at literally all of Murph's jokes. That's all it took. <laughs> it's a low bar sometimes. Wow. It really, it turns out he'd done his homework, you know? That's, that's what marks out the real professionals in this, uh, in this game, Owen. Uh, if people have done their homework, they know what gets points from me. Thanks to the many listeners who got in touch about our interview with Ham Hands, by the way. You can listen back to all our shows wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we're going to take it up another level again, as for the first time ever on Second Captain Saturday, we're breaking a world exclusive. Wow. If wow. you're an editor of a Sunday newspaper, you may want to hold <laughs> that front page for now, because the sporting highlight of today's You're probably guest, okay, by the way. If you're a Sunday uh, newspaper editor, you're, you actually probably are okay, but maybe page seven. No, I'd, I'd, I'd hold tight. Let's just, go, let's just see. It's the world-famous playwright Enda Walsh. His sporting highlight is something very, very special. What I'm saying is, if Enda also laughs at Murph's jokes, he has a real shot at the title here today. Enda Walsh <laughs> is a Tony Award winner, the highest honour in American theatre. His screenplays have won prizes at the BAFTAs and the Cannes Film Festival. He's helped to launch the career of a young Cork actor by the name of Killian Murphy, who's starring in a reasonably big Hollywood movie at the moment. <laughs> the two men continue to collaborate to this day. They're currently working together on the film adaptation of Claire Keegan's Booker shortlisted novel, Small Things Like These. Quite a guest today, Murph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And new End of Walsh plays are an event, I think, in Irish cultural life. I remember uh, Bally Turk premiering at the Galway International Arts Festival in 2014. And it was just such a, such a, a thrill, such a rush uh, to see Killian Murphy and, and just for a world uh, premiere to be happening at the Arts Festival in Galway in the summertime. I mean, these are these are proper events. These are, you know, appointment to view events. <laughs> yeah, but what about his sporting life? That's the big question today. Can he chase down Conan O'Brien to become our greatest non-sports person, sports person of 2023? Murph, the rules of the show and this week's leaderboard, please. Could have been a contender. Could have been somebody. Conan O'Brien was chugging along at a sedate pace last week, destined for a mid-table finish, when he hit us with his WWE wrestler nickname for the ages, <laughs> Ham Hands. It catapulted him to 84 points and the solo lead at the halfway stage of our quest to find out Ireland's greatest non-sports person, sports person for 2023. Today, Enda Walsh, one of Ireland's greatest living playwrights, endeavours to top that total. And let's not forget that it's been riders, the very people who should, in theory, be holed up in a dark room all day, who have flexed their sporting muscles and won the last two series running in Kit Deval and Malcolm Gladwell. So I'll give Enda a score out of 100 based on his sporting achievements to date, his all-time sporting highlight, and I'll even nominate a sports chair he most reminds me of, and we'll see if ham hands can't be taken down a peg or two. Nicely explained, Murph. Nicely explained. Can Conan cling on to top spot today? We're about to find out. Tweet us at Second Captains. Email editor at secondcaptains.com. Enda Walsh has also collaborated with David Bloody Bowie, by the way. So we got to go here first on Second Captain Saturday. I'm an alligator. I'm a mama, papa coming for you. I'm a space invader. I'll be a rock and roll and bitch 
Yes, that's Moon Age Daydream by David Bowie, who has a pretty strong connection to today's guest on Second Captain Saturday. In the almost three decades since his breakthrough play, Disco Pigs, burst out of the Cork theatre scene and became an international hit. Enda Walsh has been one of Ireland's most prolific playwrights, writing and adapting more than 15 plays, which have been translated into more than 20 languages around the world. His Broadway adaptation of the film Once won eight Tony Awards, and when he's tried his hand at writing films, he's been just as successful. His screenplay for the Bobby Sands biopic Hunger won prizes at both the BAFTAs and the Cannes Film Festival. He's collaborated with everybody from Killian Murphy to Bowie himself. And this is all before we even mention a massive world exclusive from his sporting past. Enda Walsh, you're very welcome to the show. Oh God, I'm delighted to be here. I'm very, very, I'm so excited about the world exclusive. You have no idea. It's going to be great to get it off my chest. What, yeah, exactly. What I'll tell people for now is that what we can say is you were in many ways the living embodiment of Irish football in the glory years, the Jack Charlton years. You just, you can confirm that this reputation changes mind-boggling news is a world exclusive. Nobody knows this outside of a small circle until today, right? No one knows. And I told my wife last night and she said, you're joking me. You've never, ever, t- you've joked. This is not true. I said, it's true. She said, this is, you're lying. I said, no, it's true. Honestly, talk to my brothers. Well, you're, I think your sporting interests generally have been criminally overlooked until now. Doing a lot of research and a lot of, a lot of profile interviews you've been listening to and reading. And I, I found one mention of sport. You talked about what your perfect day would be or would have been as a kid. It, it involved watching a lot of sport, basically. Yeah, so. well, I'm a sort of, I'm a child of the 70s and 80s. So there was, a, there was a lot of sport involved and a lot of, you know, Saturday afternoons and grandstand and, you know, world of sport and wrestling and stuff like that. And all sorts of carry on and darts, of course, which was huge. And, uh, but yeah. I uh, I was I was big into the uh, football, both Gaelic and the uh, English variety. <laughs> so you played both, did you? I did play both. So I grew up in in Rohini in Dublin, and I played for in Rohini. I played I played in Saint Vincent's, which is a Gaelic football team in Dublin, and uh, north side of Dublin. And for the soccer, I used to play for Clebarrick United. And I think I fancied myself as every 15 year old boy does. And there was like talk about like West Ham and, you know, there's guys coming over to look at Irish fellas. And, and I did play in a couple of those sort of matches. Oh, wow. But, um, you know, where, where you're trying out for, you know, people and all that type of thing. But I really, I think, you know, when I was 15 and when I was actually quite decent at sort of sport, I, um, I was just slight. I was like, you know, there was nothing to me and everyone else was getting sort of big and growing sort of moustaches and hair and, you know, extra muscle and stuff like that. But I was, uh, yeah, I was just a little bit, I was a bit tiny, I think. And then I grew up, you know, but at that stage, I'd sort of like, you know, I think I was turning away from the whole sort of football thing. Didn't like to be hit, but Mm. I was handy and I was sort of skillful. I wasn't particularly sort of fast, but I could, um, I could beat guys and sort of like, you know, you know, you know, sort of like, you know, turn them inside out and sort of in knots and stuff like that. But they were the sort of the glory days. I mean, when I think about it, it was like, oh, my brother was really handy. My older brother, he was like, he actually ended up playing after Paddy Cullen. He was, um, my brother John was uh, the Dublin um, Gaelic goalkeeper. But I ended his career there by doing a slide tackle on him and broke his shoulder. So he's what? a man no. of like, you know, he's, yeah, it was terrible. And he's now a sort of like, he's a professor of geology, but he's still sort of, he still has sort of dreams about lining up for Liverpool because I think he would have been, he would have been, but then John O'Leary took over and then John O'Leary had that like enormous sort of career all the way through. Yeah, he won an All-Ireland medal in 1983 and you're telling me that but for 
uh, one ill-timed tackle by you, your brother would have been there instead. <laughs> yeah, he would have been there instead. And he was sort of like, we have these amazing photographs of him, like, wow. you know, you know, like there's a fantastic one down in Kerry when they played against Kerry of Liston coming at my brother and my, my brother. This is like, or this is about sort of like 1981, I guess, or something like that. But the amount of hair in that shot, it was just like two sort of Sasquatches sort of going at one another. <laughs> it just, and it looks it looks so cool. It looks so, so ridiculously sort of cool. And yeah, I mean, he he was he was a proper player. And uh, yeah, he just went over on his shoulder and and and, and broke it because of me. So there you go. Oh no! Another great Dublin GA figure. Brian Mullins was your PE teacher. People might be aware that Roddy Doyle was your English teacher, but I don't know if you've ever heard you talking about the great Brian Mullins before, who sadly passed away last year. That's right. That's right. And what what an absolute! I got to know sort of Brian after, like I was a student and in my twenties, and when I start getting known as a playwright and all that sort of thing, he was always incredibly sort of sweet. But he was. He was a great sort of teacher and we used to, at the end of the year, you know, you have the students, you know, against the teachers and uh, in various games. And our principal was called Brendan Dunleavy, who used to play for Donegal roughly at the same time as what Brian Mullins was doing. So they, the two of them used to make absolute shit out of the, us. You know? I mean, they must have loved it, turning oh, yeah. up and just tearing into these students from Gubarak, you know, who were giving them hell during the week. And they just sort of like, you know, we dreaded it, but we had to sort of do it, you know, like at the end of the year. Sort of like Mullins that. never struck me as the sort of guy who'd uh, pull his punches in a situation like that. I mean, if he was presented with a chance to, you know, uh, bring a few students down to, to size, someone. yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, he would, but he would, but he was so such such a great. He was a fantastic person, I think, a really really good man, and um, yeah, he really, you know, it was an extraordinary school, you know, like it was in Clebarca at the time in the mid eighties when there was a terrible heroin problem. There was like so terrible, you know, unemployment and all that sort of thing. And I was like a like a middle class boy, and I was incredibly sort of fortunate. I wasn't, you know particularly bright outside of the fact that I I was very, very good at English and, you know, like I was lucky to have Roddy as my English teacher. You mentioned your, your parents there. I know your mum was an actor before uh, before you were born, but I believe your dad was even more of an influence on your career. What did he do for a living? Oh, my dad was... Uh, my dad, had, he was well known in the sort of furniture business in Dublin. He had furniture shops and stuff like that. And he was a real... Um, he was a shapeshifter, you know, like he was like proper... Would call your dad a Dell boy, but he did have that sort of quality of being able to sort of like you know chat to absolutely everyone, you know sometimes at a really sort of superficial level, and also just to sell a couch, or it's sort of like a wall unit, let's face it, or whatever. But he was charming, and he could sort of he was incredibly good on his feet, and that was really my introduction, I I think, to theatre and to character, and it was the combination of knowing that he was quite sort of um, uh, extrovert. Uh, like there was the, 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 his public self was and then seeing his private self of going oh god he's trying to keep these six kids fed and in the furniture trade there's a you know there's a recession every sort of you know seven years like in Ireland and uh, no one wants to buy a couch when they're trying to put food on the table or whatever so my dad went through sort of you know the fluctuations of like you know you know like wealth and then nothing and uh, so and pressure and anxiety. And I think as a boy, and I think this is what sort of writers sort of, you know, you, you, we're very good at sort of sitting in the silence and also reading a room and reading characters and reading subtext and watching the pressure on an individual and then trying to sort of understand that. And I think 
you know, it was a perfect sort of education for a playwright. And a lot of writers, actually, that I've ended up talking to over the years, it's weird. Their folks are, you know, usually dads, like they're men like me, I guess the ones that I sort of know, you know, but they're, they're salespeople, you know, like or they're, they're, they've had their own shops and stuff like that, you know. So you're aware of success and you're aware of like deep failure. Um, children of larger than life characters like that, they often kind of become watchers, you know, and that they've spent their childhood watching their mum or dad just dominate rooms. Was that how it was for you? And I know that you've already said the link is there between that and theatre, but you might just maybe try and explain that a little more because it's it's kind of fundamental to you, I've, I've heard you say in the past. Oh, it's completely, it is. It's sort of like, I mean, it is. I think sort of making work a lot of the time is trying to sort of create um, strangers that you haven't sort of met yet and you and characters and you're trying to get into the depths of who they are and you learn that in your family. I came from a family of six, like kids and sort of my, my parents. So that's very, very, that's a very busy house. And there's a lot of friends and a lot of like, you know, traffic, human traffic going in uh, the thing. And as a very, very young boy, I did that classic thing of sitting under the table and just listening to conversation, you know, all of that. When I got into my teenage years, I had a cassette tape and uh, like a, a sort of like a, a tape recorder thingy. And I used to tape conversation, tape my parents arguing or whatever, or my brothers sort of like trying to score with girls or whatever the hell it was, and then listen to it later on. And it was like having that sort of story upstairs now in my little box bedroom was really, was, you know, like, it was like, God, it's like having a streaming device. It was just like, you know, that was real. It was real theatre to me. It was the beginnings of real stories for me. And then later on, you know, like, I think I... I had a sort of, I had a tiny bit of a stammer when I, when I used to feel under pressure and uh, the act of talking, I, I, I was nervous about talking a lot of the time, like in school, in sort of pr- late, late primary school and early sort of secondary school. And I think that again, um, sharpens your sense of self and where you are in relation to sort of everyone else in the world and those people around you, you know, all of that. And of that pressure and anxiety you mentioned there that you could sense your dad feeling, particularly when recessions hit and it was and it was difficult in the type of business he was in, especially. Is that something you ha- have gone on to feel as an adult? Well, maybe there's a little bit down to sort of like success, right? And money. So I don't feel as if like I'm, 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 I don't have the pressure of all of that, of what he had and all of that. But there's other, of course, anxieties that sort of like, you know, that take over. Like, you know, when you work in your head and your imagination, that sort of sense of, well, A, that you're a complete, you know, con artist. And, you know, like, and you're a fake and, you know, like, and none of this sort of matters. And, you know, like there's there's that. And, you know, just, you know, the thing of like, you know, of having to keep going because being sort of frightened that actually if you don't, you're not going to be able to sort of do it anymore. And what I do is sort of something that, you know, I adore. But there's always, people I think will always find sort of little sort of itchy anxieties somewhere. I guess the sort of trick is not to allow them completely gobble you up and and trying to sort of have some perspective of self and all that sort of carry on. You talk about, that you deal with personal pain and chaos and themes like that rather than say the issues of the day it's not like a chronicle of the times we're living in which I think a lot of theatre is at the moment and I don't think that's what interests you so can you t- describe for us what attracts you to the kind of stuff you do 
I know that that's good because I think for me it's like I mean you're you're right a lot of the theatre is sort of some of the theatre that's coming out and certainly I live in London here and London has got a, a huge tradition of this is that the theatre reacts to society and what is happening in society now now and it's very sort of you know sociological sort of driven I think it responds to sort of like the world and all that to carry on like now and we don't we have that a little bit in Ireland but not so much and um, but for me, I don't I, I, I figure that actually what is happening, you know, around me politically or sort of like, in, you know, in a, from a world sort of view will come out in a very sort of like sideways way will come out in the work. So I wrote I wrote this play years and years and years and years ago called Bedbound that sort of like that effectively was sort of like was about the Celtic Tiger before the Celtic Tiger happened. But it was just but it was like a year before it all sort of kicked off. But I knew I was sort of I was writing about me and my dad and my relationship with me and my dad. But when I watched the play, I went, oh, my God, I've written about I've written about that thing of like the Celtic Tiger and this character who's just work, 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 and just addicted to money. And um, and I but I like plays that are about are that that arrive at you a little bit like a fever dream that don't sort of fit into a naturalism. Or maybe they begin as a sort of a naturalistic thing, but then they very, very quickly sort of bend and abstract it to something else. Because that is my sense of, I think, what it is to be Irish a lot of the time. <laughs> it's sort of like, um, it's, I think we're sort of like, you know, like any, I mean, I'm an Irishman, I don't know what it is to be an Englishman or whatever like that, but as a, an Irishman and a human being, I mean, life is sort of complex and, you know, twisted and all that type of carry on. And... I tend to sort of write work where that's that's what we're looking at, but that the audience, of course, recognise something of the madness of their own lives in that, and um, and that's usually sort of like an, enough for me. I you know I, I want the worlds to be strange, and uh, but that the audience like will begin to sort of unlock them, and uh, and learn them, and it will feel you know they'll feel like they know it. They they're sort of like you know it's. It's something that, you know, no matter how strange it might be. And you're not worried about that. You know, it, it's it's easier to maybe see yourself in something that's reflecting the current issue of the day rather than, as you say, a fever dream. That You're not worried about people walking into it and thinking, God, this isn't this isn't my life, therefore it makes me uncomfortable. You're, you're not worried yes, about that. Yes, exactly. I'm not, no, not now. I mean... I, I'm all about the audience and I love the audience, but also I love sort of challenging them. And listen, I mean, Jesus Christ, I mean, there are people who will just, who will go, okay, I really don't need to see an end of watch play. I'd love to go and see, <laughs> you know, like a play where they tell a story maybe, or, you know, like, or I come out at the end of it, you know, and I feel sort of, and, you know, and listen, I like a, I like a good old fat story myself, but it's just the way I don't, I just don't see the world in that way. And it's not my sort of point of view. And I guess sort of I've been lucky enough with producers and la 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 and audiences that they'll turn up for whatever my point of view is on sort of something. And but some of them might be really pissed off. And that's, you know, over the years I've dealt with that of like reviewers, you know, certain reviewers here in Britain, you know, like there was a classic one in the in the Telegraph, you know, where I I think it was after the war with farce and it was something like, you know, um, people have what you say it was like something like uh, producers have to stop producing Ender of Walsh we don't need his work in the world <laughs> and um, uh, and I was uh, and I was like and I was like yes because it was sort of like because I knew I'd split the audience because there was enough people who actually went oh no no I get it I get what he's at but there are other people who just don't and it's sort of like 
It's sort of a, that's sort of it, isn't it? I mean, like, not everyone loves Radiohead or whatever. <laughs> the approach that you talk about there goes right back to Disco Pigs, your first big hit starring a 20-year-old Killian Murphy. I'm not sure whatever happened to that guy, but no. uh, it was good for your career anyway. What, what did you see in Killian Murphy at that age? I think he was just like, he was a very, very easy lover. He was like, he was just a really, I'm going to be great if I went down that track. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like completely, completely outed him in front of, but uh, no, <laughs> no, he was sort of like, he was, he was, he was, when I met him, I met him in the English market and I'd heard from the guy who directed Pat Kieran, I direct, like, he said, oh, you have to meet this sort of kid. He's in a band in town. And I met him and then we went back to the office and he read a couple of the scenes that I'd written for Disco Pigs and I hadn't heard it read out loud apart from, you know, like me reading it out. It was like just brand new. I'd written it like literally a couple of weeks previously. And he read it and I went, oh, my God, he's incredible. And also this play is amazing. No, I didn't. I didn't. But straight away, I just thought, oh, my God, this guy's this guy's great. And he's like, you know, and he has what everything that he has now. He's like he's got he's really, you know, enigmatic and sort of like and um, he's got an extraordinary sort of energy. And back then he was all of that. And also he's got this killer voice. He's got a great voice, Killian, you know, and um and we've just and we ended up like after that doing like three big shows together, Mr. Man, um, Bally Turk and uh, Grief is the Thing with Feathers. As an actor, he's the and as a theatre actor outside of his sort of film work, he really is the full sort of like package. He's like he can do pretty much anything. And I find him hilariously funny. So you have this, you know, like and we're we're men. Right. So me and him and, you know, we outside of the work. We don't sit down and we talk about our feelings and shit like that. And you know, we're still, although we're sort of like, you know, we're artistic men, we're still, we're still blokes. And we don't actually sort of like, we don't like, you know, do all that sort of stuff. But in the room we do, in the room we completely go there and share stuff and all that type of carry on. And I know that I can sort of, you know, in the past I've written something or I've pitched something or directed a scene in a certain way that I know that, you know, we're, we end up sort of talking to one another through the work. Have you seen him in Oppenheimer yet? You know what? I'm seeing it this weekend. I'm sort of, I'm just back from holidays. I'm just back from holidays and I'm doing all that sort of admin stuff. But I'm, um, did you enjoy it? I mean, it's just amazing to see. He is he obviously such a brilliant theatre actor. But then to see him uh, give a performance for, you know, a film made almost for an IMAX theatre. So yeah. that you're, and like he obviously he's in almost every single scene. But he also has the face that can actually dominate and take over an IMAX screen in and of itself. It's just, just, it's, it's a towering achievement. You know, it genuinely, it genuinely is. I think he's just. I think he's just getting. I think he's getting started as well. There's a, there's a bit of that. I, I feel as if he's just getting better and better and better with each, with everything that he does. It's. I'm so excited for him. You know, because he works. The guy. I mean, he works hard and we all know that the whole sort of fame thing is just so uncomfortable I think, for him. Everyone knows that. He doesn't go, he doesn't go in for, for that. That's just the terrible thing that you have to sort of like deal with and all that business. But he's just all about the work and, you know, like and, uh, and, and getting better. And I, I really, I really think he is. Yeah. All right. The voice you're hearing on Second Captain Saturday today is that of the world renowned playwright Enda Walsh. We're getting closer to the moment. We rank Enda's sporting life and reveal our world <laughs> exclusive from his sporting past. You are comfortable with uncovering the secret from your past after the break, Enda? I'm ready for it. Excellent. We're, we're all ready. We'll be back after these. Second Captain, first Captain, whatever. 
You're listening to Second Captain Saturday with Owen and Murph and today's guest, the former silky underage football star with St. Vincent <laughs> and Kilbarrick United, Enda Walsh. I mean, he's also one of Ireland's most successful ever playwrights, but that gets no points on this show. It's all about the <laughs> midfield no scheming. We, and we should also mention you were quite adept at the high jump, apparently. Yeah. Oh, my God. I loved it. See, this was like what I talked about earlier. And I, like I was a little bit, I was very slight and it was like being pushed around the football pitch. And I, I, I fell out of love of football because I was being kicked around the place. But in school, it turned out and I had that sort of summer where I grew by a foot the way sort of boys do. And I came back in sort of September and there was like a high jump sort of bar in, in the gym. And I started at it and it turned out that I was really good at it. And uh, and I loved it. I lo- I, I sort of like... I, I ended up being really quite good at it and sort of I think I, I think I came to, I think it was it was third anyway in, in the Leinsters but I could clear I could clear 190 which is a pretty good um, what? 190? Yeah, <laughs> well, which is my which is which is above my own high so I was yeah, like you're clearing own there no problem like <laughs> yeah. you're flying clear over wow. Owen's head yeah I loved it I mean I sort of like I I was I was super handy I was like and I think there's a lot of sort of Theater. I like this. I like the sort of you know the uh, slightly sort of theatrical show offy <laughs> element to it. There was a bit of style involved, and it sort of got me a girlfriend, which was great. So, yeah. <laughs> You're building a case for yourself here as our greatest non-sports person, sports person. I got to say, we haven't even got to your world exclusive sporting highlight. I did just want to ask you before that about working with David Bowie on the musical Lazarus. Yeah, one of the last projects he ever worked on. How did that all come about? So I think he'd seen work of mine in New York, but I think he'd seen like uh, maybe three or four of my pieces there. And then he wanted to do something um, based on the sort of the Manifesto Earth, sort of like something on it. And I was in New Mexico at the time, holiday in New Mexico in time, and I got a call from Robert Fox, the producer, and he said, would you stop off in New York to meet Bowie? And I was like, oh my God, okay. And then he, he had the idea. He had basically the breakdown of the piece. And I said, well... And then we talked about it for four days and then we start working. And then we worked sort of like whether we were sort of online, like Skype or I was in New York. And then I would go to his offices in New York and we would just write and read. I mean, my favorite sort of my favorite time of the whole project was actually just sort of sitting down opposite him, the desk and him with a guitar and <laughs> us reading reading sort of like, you know, scenes together and him just sort of singing a song. And, 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 you know, I was going and, and that's when it, it sort of like I was going, all oh, right, yeah, God, it's David Bowie. And <laughs> it, it, would, it would hit me, you know, because the, the rest of the time he's, he was such a nice man. He would just completely sort of put you out your ease. And he was just a good, really good person, lo- lovely man, could talk to him about anything. But, yeah, it was pretty it was an incredibly special time. And I'll never, ever have the opportunity to work with someone who like an icon like that, but also sort of someone who is. You know who who who's dying like at the during the end of the process. Who was like you know who had cancer and that was really, really extraordinary. Sort of like yeah. um, shocking and sad and beautiful and and all the rest. And and to make a show about a man who just wants to die properly. You know was what we ended up doing. So it was really something else. That's incredibly poignant. Yeah. How did you find out that Bowie was sick? He rang me up and told me. He sort of like he just said, "Listen, I need to tell you." And then we. We just chatted it out and I was like, wow, put down the phone, burst out crying. And I was like, going, oh, my God. Um, and then, but he was going, let's not, you know, let's just keep on working. To he did say, he says, oh, God, I guess now, now we know what we're writing about. And I went, yeah. I mean, it was always on the cards. We were writing about this 
this sort of, but it really, it became to, and then we started changing things and introducing sort of things, I think, based upon all of that. And it was, it was extraordinary. It was, yeah, it was, yeah, all of that. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was an intense period, but, but incredibly, incredibly special. And it's just, it's, it's sad when, you know, like you're working with someone and someone gets sick by that. I mean, I've had like a couple of friends die, you know, but I mean, he was, he was so lovely to everyone and so brilliant with it. And, you know, backstage the opening night, he was just like, you know, he went around, you know, congratulating everyone and all the, you know, have I thanked everyone, like the staff outside and the sort of like the box office and, you know, the people like, you know, like all of this, like, like everyone in the theatre, have I thanked everyone? And I said, you have, you have, you have here. He says, okay, I should go, I should go, I should go now. And like he, and he went and that was the last I saw him. And then like, you know, it's like, I think it was maybe three weeks later he died. That was the last anyone saw of him, I think, wasn't it? Was that his last, yeah. that was his last fo- uh, public know. appearance, yeah. And he had like, you see the glasses I'm wearing now, which is really sweet. So he loved these glasses. Yeah. And, uh, and he says, where did you get them? And I got them from, and I said, I got them from Sid Fizz in London here on, in Queens Park. And he said, I love those glasses. He said, will you get me the frames? So I sent him the, sent him the frames and then he got, he got the thing. So he's wearing these glasses. And I said, I said, my God, we look like the Proclaimers. This is classic. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, that was very sweet. So whenever I look at that photograph, I always think about sort of like getting those frames being sent over, sent over and all the rest. Of ah, it. So lovely. Uh, just to clear one thing up, when yeah. Bowie is there strumming away on the guitar and singing a few tunes, are you joining in or are you giving him some space? You know, I didn't want to put him to shame or anything like that, you know, but and, no, I'm definitely giving him some space. Yeah, yeah. I was doing some interpretive dance. You know, sure. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's obviously. And so listen, we've talked about Bowie, Oppenheimer, Disco Pigs, Fathers and Sons, Theatre, Brian Mullins, a bit of Roddy Doyle, but it's time to give the people what they've been waiting for. This is a world exclusive, Enda. What links you to the team that Jack built, the most beloved sports team in this country's history? What links me to that extraordinary, extraordinary team? Well, actually, that cultural moment for all of us, probably the largest sporting cultural moment, is that I was the Irish team mascot. That man in that dog outfit. I was Wolfie. McCool. 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 The Irish Wolfie. You were McCool. Yes. I was him. This is, uh, this is, uh, I should explain the significance to our listeners here. We had a TV show on RT2 and we used to constantly play footage of McCool, the, the Irish football wolfhound mascot of the 80s, mainly because he was such an amazing entertainer, performing in front of the Lansdowne Road crowd, dancing on the Late Late Show. Such a star, in fact, that George Hamilton would mention him in commentaries. And the flags wave and the crowd cheers and the Irish make their way to the Lansdowne Road terrace. And as always, on occasions such as this, McCool, the Irish mascot, makes his entrance as well. Murph, this is huge. And uh, you need to know that we started a TV campaign to find out who McCool was. Uh, We've popped a clip from our old TV show up on Twitter and Instagram so everyone can see Enda's best work here. We put out a call to the Irish nation to identify the person behind the wolfhound head. (laughs) <laughs> and you ignored it, guys. I did. I wasn't. I wasn't aware of it. But somehow, it, this Don't was written in the me. stars. 
you were like going, oh yeah, we'll we'll talk to the Irish playwright Enda Walsh who writes all that sort of crap, and then you get this piece of gold. <laughs> I can't believe you haven't seen our TV show. And the people used to watch that show in their hundreds, their literal hundreds. Oh god. <laughs> uh, so how did this come about? How did how does one become the Irish wolfhound that is synonymous with the? Oh, okay, the so news? people of a certain age in Ireland and Dublin particularly who sort of lived through the 80s in Dublin, will know who the Dice Man is. The Dice Man was this uh, man. He was like a human billboard. He used to walk down uh, Grafton Street and uh, with sort of advertising whatever sort of company had given him money. But he would create these extraordinary costumes and walk incredibly slowly down the street. He was this six foot four, six foot five, you know, bald man, right? Now he, I was a boy, I think I was 21, 22 at the time, right? So I got to know him and I got to know his manager. And they said to me, Ender, do you want to do you want to sort of like earn some money? And they said, listen, it's the, you know, so it was late 1989. It was the lead up to sort of like, well, sort of say about sort of a whole six, seven months before Italian 1990. And they said, um, the Republic of Ireland team are looking for like a mascot. So we built this thing. We bought this Irish wolfhound thing. So I, I went, saw this thing, put this like Irish wolfhound sort of head on, got into the gear with these hairy arms and hairy legs. And I was like, going, oh, my God. And I said, and they said, you know, and, you know, you're going to you're going to go and, you know, you'll see every game like leading up to sort of like, you know, Italia 90. And we might get into sort of like Italy. So I went, yeah, I'm in, I'm in. And I was getting 450 quid a game. Wow. Decent like, money. Really decent money. So I'd rock up. And do all that larking around before and a half time, running around the sort of like pitch. I urinated. I didn't actually urinate. I mocked urinating on some. I think we were playing against the Soviet Union or something like that, right? On the post, on the goalpost. And got like a cheer from the crowd. And I was thinking, well, God, this is like. And it was a really, I mean, you can be extrovert when you've got like a sort of a wolf sort of like mask on. So I I remember just watching all these games through this mouth, you know, through the mouth of this dog going, going, oh, my God, this is so amazing. And also, I'm incredibly embarrassed as my life is my life going to come to this. This is a disaster. So but then I would go to this bar. There's a bar, you know, there's a member's bar in Lansdowne Road. I used to go there after the games and I got to know the Irish soccer team, the Irish football team. And um like Ray Hatton was like one of the nicest men I've ever met, right? So he got talking to me and he was like going, and you know, after a while they all knew who I was, but he was like going, so Enda, you know, like, I mean, what, what are you getting paid per, per game? So I told them and they were like, oh my God, you're getting paid more than us. You're getting paid more than this thing's got a 450 a, a week. We're on, I think they were on 300 quid a match or something. Probably true at that time, yeah. Yeah, so it was all of this sort of carry on. I got to see some extraordinary things. But I was like this, and I looked like, at the time I had these little round glasses, I looked like James Joyce. And, you know, so I'd be there, you know, sort of reading a book and sort of having a, having a pint after the match, you know, with my, my wolf's costume in my sports bag. So weird, the whole thing. You didn't manage, you didn't get to Italia 90, which is probably for the better, I suppose, since Con Hoolan's famous line, I, I missed Italia 90, I was there. I don't know what happened, but I, I couldn't be there and they, and they gave it to someone else. But I actually ended up doing the Dublin gigs, which sort of which, which meant that I was like I was being driven around to big bars and, you know, like our halls with sort of big screens in it. And I was molested by apps, men and women all over Dublin. That's sort of like through that. So when I think of like Italian 90 and all of that, I just think about just being, you know, 
violated in a in a wolf outfit by you know the good people of of Dublin. It was just it was it was an extraordinary time. It was sort of like a comic book. It was like living in a you know a comic strip. You know, it was like it was that sort of feeling to it. It felt like you know like mythological and stupid and comic and hilarious and sad because I was also like you know I wanted to be a writer. And I was here, I was 22, and I was like going, oh, my God, I think this is going to be my life. You know, like, I think I'm going to be like a, a, a mascot for the rest of my life. Did you keep your identity a secret at the time? Generally, did many people know that you were McCool? My mom knew I was doing. She thought it was amazing that I was earning so much money because, you know, otherwise I was on the dole. I was like, you know, I was getting whatever it was, like 25 quid a week from, you know, the dole. And sort of like, so she loved it. You know, suddenly I was like flash. I had a bit of... <laughs> from running around the place. Okay, is there one episode then in this amazing run as a national icon that you could pin down as a sporting highlight for us today? Please, Enda. There was a... Uh, Opal were opening up a factory in Scaries. Of all... All, all stories should begin like yeah, that. Yeah. So, <laughs> it sounds so glamorous, doesn't it? But anyway, they were opening up a, sort of a, a car factory or a car dealership or something like that. So they invited... Uh, Jack Charlton and they invited me you know and they said will, will, you, will you come and you know like and I said oh yeah sure so I got I got there you know got the bus out to sort of scaries got into my sort of wolf outfit Jack turned up and you know there's a load of people there and they're all out to see sort of Jack of course and the FIA officials were there and then uh, afterwards um, there was talk about uh, oh let's go and have a let's go and have a drink and I thought oh god and they invited me I was out of the I was out of the, the dog at this stage right <laughs> And uh, so I'm walking down the road and I'm, wa- I'm suddenly I'm thinking, oh, God, I'm walking with sort of Jack Charlton here. And then we turn around looking for the others and they're gone. And we're walking, like looking for these people. And Jack goes, Jesus, they're gone. And there's no mobile phones or anything like that. So we went into this pub and the pub was empty and there was a pool table there. And he ordered a couple of pints. He said, do you want a pint? I said, yeah, I'll have a pint of Guinness. And, he, and, and so we had two points of Guinness and he says, do you play pool? And I said, yeah, not very well, but I'll play pool. He was an excellent pool player. So, of course, right. the, like, honestly, within half an hour, you know, there's like the, the place is busy. But before, you know, like people started arriving, I had a half an hour with Jack Charlton around this pool table playing pool, which he completely beat me all the time. But he was asking me, he was sort of saying, so do you want to do this with, for the rest of your life? <laughs> I said, yeah, I mean, please, God, you know, you know, I might, you know, change animals, you know, go, become an elephant one day. And, uh, and, and I said, no, you know, I said, I really want to be a writer. I w- want to write. And he was going, oh, that's great. That's really interesting. And I was going, yeah, I said, I've, you know, I've been writing since I was 14, but that's the thing I want to do, you know, like ultimately, you know, like is write theatre and write film and stuff like that. And he was very sweet and he was like, well, good for you, you know, and all the rest and goodwill and all that type of carry on. And, um, but it was, it was sort of, for that, in that period, honest to God, it was like meeting Elvis for any sort of Irish person. And it's only sort of in retrospect, like I look back at that period and think, actually, that this is hilarious and sort of like ridiculous, uh, like deeply sort of like moving and big for me and uh, nothing for him, like just... But it was a really extraordinary, extraordinary moment. And then, you know, the FAI sort of turned up and 
completely ruined it and pulled us out of there, you know, when everyone was turning <laughs> up. I got to say, I love Jack Charlton more any time I hear a story about him. There's never been, there has never been a sporting highlight more perfectly attuned to Murph's scoring algorithm, by the way. Conan O'Brien <laughs> is listening nervously in LA, I'm sure, because his top spot is in grave danger with that world exclusive. Murph, can you please now rank this sporting life of Ender Walsh? You don't understand, I could have had class. You don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Okay, and uh, the time has come for me to start making enemies. This is the moment I carefully study your all-time sporting highlight, pick an athlete that I feel most closely resembles you and your sporting <laughs> achievements, and then give you a score out of 100 to see if you can overtake Conan Hamhans O'Brien's 84 points from last week and put you in first position at the halfway stage of our quest to discover who will be crowned our non-sports person sports person for 2023. And I want to say that this has been, in many ways, the toughest hour of my journalistic career. What we've heard here over the last few minutes is performance on a level I don't actually think we've ever seen before. Uh, first of all, your high jump achievements alone are genuinely better than 95% of any of our guests. And your flamboyant pre-jump routines remind me so much of the greatest track and field entertainer of them all, the great Chris Akabusi. <laughs> so too, your lightweight but devastating midfield scheming. West Ham's loss was truly theatre's gain. To be the long, hairy, wolfhound face and elegant tale of an entire nation's support for our most beloved sports team is extraordinary. <laughs> your career advice from Jack Tarleton, don't be a mascot, become a writer. That's a legitimate thrill. In any sane world... This would be enough for an all-time record equaling 88 points and the outright lead this season. However, we did launch a national campaign on our television show, Second Captains Live, eight years ago to discover who the oh, man Murph. or woman in the McCool's... Oh, please, don't interrupt me. I didn't interrupt you. Don't interrupt me. <laughs> we played clips. I even dressed up as McCool myself for an in no way degrading quiz contest against Tipperary hurling legend Owen Kelly. Now, you, you may plead mitigating circumstances... You were living in London. You were working with literally David Bowie at the time. These sorts of <laughs> pathetic excuses to explain away why you didn't answer our call. But a Murphy never forgets. I have deducted five points for making a fool out of me, out of second captains, and worst of all, out of old McDevitt. But I'm just sitting here now. Bloody hell, you mock urinated up against a goalpost in Lansdowne Road. <laughs> I'm giving you two points back. It's 88 points minus five points plus two points equals 85 points. You're in first place. End of watch. This has been your sporting life. Back of the net. I'm genuinely <laughs> exhausted. I mean, the, the mental uh, gymnastics required. To, but I mean, listen, I must tr trust the algorithm. And the algorithm has come up oh with 85 points. Well deserved. Enda Walsh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been brilliant. Thanks a million. You too, guys. Pleasure, pleasure.
We've been talking a lot about collaborations today on Second Captain Saturday, and that's a gorgeous one right there between one of our favourite young Irish acts, CMAT, and one of our favourite musicians ever, John Grant, with the brilliant new single, Where Are Your Kids Tonight? Well, that was... I'm still catching my breath, Murph. That was an absolute belter of a sporting life segment <laughs> with Enda Walsh. You did the right thing in the end. The life advice from Jack Charlton. The envy yeah. from Ray Houghton over the... I'm going to say very generous pay that McCool got in those days. <laughs> the insane crowd reaction to McCool pretending to go to the toilet at Lansdowne Road. Oh. The crowd loved that kind of thing. This is yeah, a multi-layered yeah. epic of a story. It may have come 10 years too late for our TV show, but I am glad we finally revealed the true identity of McCool for our Radio 1 listeners today. Tell you, that Arnold, uh, Arnold O'Byrne, he was meta-money. 450 quid. Unbelievable. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a job. Nice work if yeah. you can get it, huh? <laughs> well, if Kitty Murphy is listening today, I'm sorry your long-time collaborator, Enda Walsh, hasn't gone to see Oppenheimer yet. Another world <laughs> exclusive awkward. there for everybody. <laughs> oh, dear. I'm going this weekend. Uh, listen, you know, that's certainly what I would say if I wasn't yeah, intending to yeah. go see it, but someone asked me on live national radio. Uh, yeah, it's pretty much unprovable <laughs> one way or the other. So we're, we're going to have to take his word for it. And he was such an amazing guest. We will take his word on that one. Of course. That's us done for this afternoon. Stay tuned to RT Radio 1 for the first episode in a new series of Doc on 1. This has been a Second Captain's production for RTE. The show was produced by Killian Down. Mark Horgan is a series producer for Second Captains. Our thanks to Johnny Lanagan and RTE. If one Second Captain show a week isn't enough for you and you'd like to hear us more often, check out our daily shows on secondcaptains.com. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.